Welcome back, welcome back to Radio Morfork. Hello everybody. Hello indeed. This is the podcast where we discuss, rate, review and analyse all of Terry Pratchett's Discworld books one book at a time in chronological order. I'm Colm, he's... Steve. God, I genuinely couldn't remember that. It's been so long since we've done this podcast. It has been quite some time, actually, yeah, yeah. Um, How did you get in, actually? Um, Climb through the window. We make a point of never speaking to one another in between episodes. Yeah, Uh, yeah, it ruins the flow. Yeah, let's dampen the the, the spontaneousness of our our on-air banter. Um, yeah, but we're we're very glad to be back. I think our our uh, post hugs watch hiatus stretched out for for longer than either of us would have anticipated. But here we are. We're back in the thick of things with Jingo, the twenty first Discworld book. Um, war is the subject. You know, a perfect you know follow up to wholesomeness and Christmas and yeah. presents and you know goodwill. You know, kind of the natural follow on when you get yeah, right down to yeah, it. Like, just the, <laughs> Like Christmas dinner arguments and <laughs> fights over presents on a on a international scale. Absolutely. <laughs> so um, I suppose we should go over the plot of Jingo before we go any further. Yeah, indeed we should. Um, so um, I suppose uh, if this seems a little off the cuff, it's because we forgot to actually print out the summary of Jingo. But uh, in essence, Jingo is about the island of Lesp which rises up in the Circle Sea, and this sparks a debate between the Ankh-Morpork Empire and the Clachian Empire over who basically should dominate this island, who has ownership of it. Um, It's a very tense time politically, and during uh, this time, there is an episode when a Clachian ambassador is assassinated. No, he's, yeah, they attempt to assassinate. Attempted assassinated, uh, sorry, in the streets of Ankh-Morpork. And this spurs on uh, Commander Vimes of the City Watch to uh, try and solve this attempted assassination, find out who is trying to basically stir up trouble and turmoil between these two cities. Yeah, and, and they're very um, they're very successful in stirring up trouble and turmoil because shortly thereafter, war breaks out between uh, Clatch and Ike Morpork. Vimes is stripped of his command. I think the Watch is temporarily disbanded but as a knight he's able to put together his own regiment uh, for the uh, for the war so he uh, puts together a regiment essentially entirely comprised of the watch and they uh, journey over to Clatch to track down 71 hour Ahmed the bodyguards uh, of Prince Skifora the, the, the dignitary who was uh, almost assassinated who are there convinced has something to do with the attempted assassination once they get over there they run into the uh, the Duregs, uh, the um, desert nomad tribe, who it turns out are in collusion with uh, Ahmed to stall Vimes. Vimes goes out in the desert, uh, meets Ahmed, discovers he's actually a policeman too, and he's actually trying to solve the, he has solved rather, the, the mystery of the attempted assassination. He uh, has discovered it was the Kalachians themselves who've done it in the hope of uh, provoking more. Prince Kadram of the Kalachians done it in the hope of giving uh, himself a a cos a, what's a cosus belly for war cosus belly the, a reason to go to war <laughs> um, and also getting his uh, getting his brother out of the way um, so uh, Vimes and Ahmed then um, try to stop the war by arresting both Clachian uh, <laughs> and Angmorpork armies arresting their commanders Wonderful Prince moment. Kadram and, and Lord Rust who has taken over as Lord Veterinary has been te- temporarily. Um, relieved of command of the city and in fact while he's been relieved of command he's uh, what's he doing 
So at that point, Veterinary, along with Leonard de Quirm and two appointees in the form of Nobby Nobs and Sergeant Colon, have gone into uh, the going under the water device <laughs> to basically explore beneath the island of Lesp. And once they've done this and discovered that there's a great big uh, hollow cavern beneath the island, they go to the representatives of Clatch and basically give themselves up and Veterinaries uh, basically uh, agrees to any terms that they care to throw at them. And when this is the case, uh, he's brought back to Ankh-Morpork for trial for treason, I believe, Yeah, yeah. Uh, for doing this. And at this point, he reveals that Lesh no longer exists because it has since, it has risen up, it has since fallen back under the sea. And apparently it does this every couple of years so uh and basically everything more or less reverts back to normal with the exception of samuel vimes being giving a is he's a, made a duke he's made a duke and his, I, I was about to say he's given a duchy but i suppose he isn't really because it's, he isn't granted any new territory or no not really he's basically just, sort he's of basically just yeah. given a title yeah. really which uh he hates <laughs> which is uh pretty uh funny actually in the fact that like veterinary has essentially given him something that you know, almost anybody would take as a compliment, but Vimes absolutely despises. Um, but yeah, in essence, that is the plot of Jingo, and we're going to talk about it now. So, uh, Colin, tell me, what did you think of this particular book? Um, I liked it. It's really, really funny. Uh, okay, heard... we can shut it down now. Yeah, we're done. Much it. <laughs> no, I, I've heard people say, uh, and, and it does give off this sense, and go into this in more detail later, that a lot of it feels like Pratchett had all these spare jokes and bits written for the watch that he couldn't fit into other books, and he's mm. kind of jamming them in here, particularly the, the Colin and Nobby stuff, yeah. which I think is just absolutely hilarious. Solid goal, uh, yeah. But there is a kind of sense of, like, uh, I know, uh, tangentialness to it. Um, but, I mean, yeah, just, I did, like those bits are brilliant. I love the, the whole, like... Colin being, you know, acting like a fat idiot by just being natural, but thinking he's being quite uh, sly about it, and yeah. the little jabs that Nari's getting in, you know, how, what does he say when it, they say they're from Or? How, how do I didn't know you had a university from Or? Of course, so also think Al uh, knew what a donkey was, and like <laughs> Nobby um, dressing up as a, the uh, kind of belly dancer Betty. and Betty, yeah, and breaking that universal law of narrative convention that anytime a man dresses as a woman other men will just find him attractive for <laughs> hilarity's sake I really at, like. at least one other man will inexplicably yeah. find him attractive but this is the one scenario where that simply can't happen yeah, <laughs> um, yeah like all, all that stuff's really funny the stuff like with uh, uh, with Carrot and just like him diffusing situations by getting him to play Football mm. and to, to uh, uh, apologize, that's that's all really funny too. I absolutely love his. Sorry to interrupt, just I love his intro in this book. The very first time you see him, he is essentially acting like a scout master. Yeah. Scout master. yeah. Just like one hundred percent nailing the fact. Just in case you forgot what kind of person Carrot is, you know he is literally a <laughs> scout master for all the thugs of Ag Morpork and like completely oblivious to how vicious, what vicious little bastards they all are. Um. I have to say though, like I, I remember when I was coming back to this, it's one of those books that I always knew was good, but uh, it never really stuck out for me very much. Like you know, if you were just, like if someone's to ask me like, Jingo, uh, you know, where does that stand? It's like oh, it's somewhere in the middle. You know, I wouldn't have ranked it that highly, but after reading it again, I have to say I really, really enjoyed it. Like there's a, 
a lot of very clever stuff going on in terms of politics and war in particular like really really clever narrative stuff like um one of the things that like jumped out at me that i really liked was um when the chamber of rats when they're discussing uh what they're going to do about this island and basically the possibility of going to war and i think you know perhaps it's always known for subverting fantasy tropes and you know a lot of narrative tropes in general and in most cases it would simply be a case of we need to go to war or we can't go to war because you know we don't have you know the resources but in this one you know the kind of tricky part of it is we could go to war but if we do we have to remember the whole world is watching you know and like they all have their eye on us and a lot of them don't actually mm -hmm. like us that much so we're going to be placing ourselves in a very tricky uh, situation if we attack this foreign country you know so it's 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 a lot more political than most fantasy novels would be in the way it approaches yeah, war. Yeah, I, I think so. And indeed, it's kind of more political than even a Discord book would have to be because we haven't been like introduced to a lot of the other countries in great detail. No. But it very much kind of pays attention to the idea that... Well, interesting did, times we did. Yeah, well, a lot of the other countries around, like, more oh, right, like right, when they right. talk about the world watching, they mean like Querm and Pseudopolis and the other places near Clatch yeah. and so mm -hmm. on. Um, but, you know, it very much pays... It, highlights the idea here well that they're there this is a lived in world and they're going to have a role and have a say and as you say that is more complex than like in a lot of uh, classical traditional fantasy it's like there's an evil empire attacking a, you know a humble rebel kingdom or something and, mm. and you're wondering what is what is what do the neighbours think of the evil empire you know like uh, yeah like, you don't get like in Lord of the Rings there isn't like an orc running a Chinese takeaway like in the middle of yeah, yeah no, you don't. <laughs> the middle of Hobbiton or anything like but, that you know, you know in, in real life when, when say when the Britain entered uh, World War One, um, they'd done it to you know uh, ostensibly because the Germans had invaded Belgium and there was this idea of like oh Belgium's this small plucky neutral country and we've got to stand up for them that was also actually played upon a lot uh, over here with recruiting Irish people to uh, fight in World War One. This idea of little Catholic Belgium obviously has a lot in common with little Catholic Ireland, mm. so stand up for it. Uh, you know, so, so that's sort of how war works in real life. You know, like presumably the uh, the Germans anticipated like uh, their uh, the Schlieffen plan was like get to France really quick, beat France run sprint back east to beat Russia before Britain can get over but mm. they were anticipating well if Britain are Britain are going to enter this war against us they're France and Russia's ally and once we go through Belgium they'll definitely enter you know whereas in fantasy a lot it's just like you're kind of wondering there like, are two sides yeah, and they're, they're going to attack each other and whoever has the most wins yeah, yeah exactly and it's like what, what are what are the neighbours saying about this like yeah. are, you know the, the countries uh, like sharing borders with the, with these other countries they're just saying hang on we'll send in try and send in a diplomat and calm this down mm. or well we're we're on these guys side and whether that means joining the war or just mm. supporting them through supplies or things like that exactly. you, you don't really hear about it. and okay maybe in a lot of ways that's a more modern thing but i mean it like it happened in the middle ages and stuff too you constantly have yeah. like scotland and france joining up to fight england and thing you know uh things like that the, the 30 years war was kind of almost a a proto World War One, and that was in the 1600s, mm. um, and it is something that's often overlooked. The kind of I suppose the the real politic of war, and this idea of again of needing a good reason to go to war that isn't just enough yeah. to be able to say, the "Oh, we got a big army and we don't like them, so yeah, yeah we're gonna yeah. go." Um, and there's lots of little nuances that I really like, like little bits that you know they don't necessarily feed that much into the narrative, but they paint a very colorful picture, like you know the. Uh, 
you know, the weapons dealers selling weapons to Clatchians yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. And, like, you know, you know, the people of Ankh-Morpork, oh, they're full of, like, you know, patriotism and civic pride and all that, but, you know, they still want to make money, so they're going to sell the weapons to the Clatchians. Like, okay, so we have no weapons, but we're full, chock full of civic pride. Um, lots of little bits like that. I think in terms of uh, the books that we've read so far, like, the only one that, co- that has come even close to, like, looking at war has been Interesting Times. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, the only other one that has become with, like, you know, looking at a foreign body. But uh, that, I feel like that was more of a civil war, and even that was a bit more straightforward. I think that kind of comes closer to what we are talking about before with there are two armies, you know, even if, like, one... They are... It's a civil war, so it is, like, two armies within an empire. But... Um, that is basically what it is, like, you know, the good guys versus the bad guys, very simple kind of thing. Whereas this one, uh, it's, it's just, it's, I, I just think it's, um, yeah, it's just, just a, it's a really, really interesting uh, take on it altogether, all I have to say. Um, I really like the, the opening where it, it uh, emphasizes the similarities as well as the cultural differences between two people, just with the, uh, the two sailors, the two, two fishermen yeah, at the yeah. start. It's a, it's a wonderful way of painting just like, how ludicrous like the differences are when like in broad strokes you're basically the same you're just two men mm-hmm. and uh all prone to the same stupid mistakes like taking the wrong son back on your boat <laughs> or uh whatever i like a lot of the uh the stuff about the the garrafts the clatchian and the collections that live in mm-hmm. angmore in general the idea of um you know uh when I love that bit when Carrot goes in and starts speaking to them in Clatchian. Mm. Um, and then Vimes goes to, like, he's surprised that Carrot can speak Clatchian and almost feels embarrassed that, like, he never could and he's been coming to this, you know, this, uh, whatever, it's like a, a, you know, curry house for years. And then he has this moment where he begins to tell Carrot, oh, tell them as if they don't understand, you know, more porkian. Mm. And he has to stop himself and be like, oh, no, you do. Um, and it shows that that sense of... Uh, uh, like foreignness and us and them mm. can kind of um, happen so quickly and so subtly even to people who like Vimes who are trying to think against it who are trying you know who are mm. opposed to the whole idea of the war and the whole idea of the dividing it up into us and them like yeah. he, you know he's still he's still falling into it and I like the parts with the, the son uh, I can't remember Mr. Garth's son's name feeling very like caught between two cultures I kind of wish we had to see more of that where he's just yeah. like you know he's really like angry at the essentially the racism he's, he's uh, feeling the brunt of Ankh Morpork but he doesn't want to go to Clatch because all he's known is Ankh Morpork yeah he's and, never, and, like there's that point where he says he's never actually been to Clatch and like it's it, it really strikes like close to the heart mm-hmm. when you see that kind of thing because that's something that is experienced like all over the world still like so it's uh, but you are right there's there's that um there's a sort of underlying desire for like almost every character in the book for the war to be simple when it's not, you know? They all want it just to be like, oh, stupid, like, you know, towel heads or whatever. Yeah. Like, you know, we want to just go after them. But Vimes is the only one who's actually stupid enough to be clever about it. Which, like, because, like, you know, if he'd gone, if he'd gone with his, uh, you know... I'm not going to say his... See, this is, there's always, like, a weird sense that Vines actually is semi-racist, but he's trying to fight it, like you say. Yeah, well, like, I think he has what you call, like, a, um, institutionalized racism, you know, that mm. he just, like, he grew up in, like, a probably, like, pretty, you know... He grew up in, like, racist, Morford, yeah, and, you know, yeah, London, like, basically. So. Yeah, atmosphere in, like, Morford. And with the best will in the world, like, you can't just, you know, 
have a light bulb flick in your head and decide I'm enlightened now yeah, and, you know, exactly. I'm no longer have any of these prejudices they're always going to be there and I always like that about the way Vimes is depicted in a lot of the books that uh, he doesn't kind of like it's like his alcoholism how he's usually it's an ongoing thing you know he isn't just mm. kind of completely transformed he's always yeah it's always fighting against the these urges and a prejudices that he though. has the alcoholism yeah certainly yeah. but but that idea of him kind of not just being some superman now that he's mm. like fixed and married to Sybil and so on but it's great that um the amount of times that uh you know he wants to suspect like who is it he says someone um i think it's the clatchian ambassador who comes in mm-hmm. and he immediately he wants to be suspicious of him but because he's clatchian he says no i can't be yeah and it turns yeah. out like he he should have been suspicious I, the I, entire I, time i love that line from ahmed when he says be truly equal to samuel allow for clatchians to be sneaky bastards as yeah well. i love that that was just wonderful <laughs> yeah. like you know and that's that's you know it's that's where it's so much more in some ways this in this in this I'm a little bit like half and half in this because I think in some ways this uh, succeeds Men at Arms in terms of like what it does in terms of racism. See that's Men at Arms I think was particularly focused on the idea of racism, but it was painted very black and white. But it was as I said, it was very focused. Whereas this one, it's um, I'd say less focused because it kind of interweaves you know things like propaganda, war, and like you know as you say institutionalized racism. It's 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 like uh, if Men at Arms was Mississippi burning, Jingo would be Get Out. You know, <laughs> it, it, it's much more modern in that but sense. Does it feel strange to you um, having a Discworld book, twenty one books in, about racism as we know it between like two different human ethnicities when they previously sort of obliquely dealt with that truth? You know, tensions between dwarfs, trolls, humans. I remember you saying when we don't. Um, which is abroad, how you like, there was this idea of like, like uh, the fact that uh, Mrs. Pleasant and Mrs. Gogol are black, or presumably most of the other people in Genoa, is mentioned really offhandly, and there's the kind of idea that even though like Nanny has never like met black people before, it's sort of no big deal, because you're living in a world where there's other sentient species, so the idea of someone who's just a different race to you, than you isn't you know that huge. So with, with that in mind, does it feel weird that like now... You know, in this one, it clearly is a big divide. But I think this is more uh, about cultural adversity rather than like you know uh, racial differences, though. I mean, yeah, but they're they're sort of intertwined, right? They, I mean, they like, are kind intertwined. Of like racism, yeah. as we know it in the world, is like yeah. much more cotton, like uh, I suppose, like attitudes or stereotypes that are associated with particular races or mm. cultures, rather than um, the actual biology of how people are different. Yeah, it's. It is strange. It's a little. It, it is a little bit inconsistent. All right, yeah. But um, if, if if I'm being honest, uh, now this 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 um, this doesn't excuse it per se. But uh, I feel like most people won't be analysing these books the same way we're analysing. Yeah, so if you were just reading through it, uh, it's not something that would stand out in particular. Like I mean, bear like we are going through this with a fine. Well. well not a fine tooth comb, but a tooth comb. A pretty good comb. <laughs> a pretty damn good comb. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, you're right, it is inconsistent, but um, I'm willing to forgive it in this one because I think it does such a good job in what it does, you know. Uh, and, and you can't excuse it in some sense because when you get right down to it, the guards aspect of the Discworld series does investigate, you know, uh, the political aspects of it, you know, societal aspects, whereas the witches have a tendency to move towards 
philosophical or psychological, mm-hmm. uh, you know, themes, if you know what I mean. So I think it's, you can kind of excuse it in that sense. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Do you know one thing, um, just I want, I want to go back to uh, the likes of propaganda and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really like, uh, who was it who said... I can't remember which character that said it, but they, um, I think it was, I think it might have been Biden, it was in one of his inner monologues, but he said that nothing unites people like a good war. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting, you know, because you're constantly having all the people, like every guard's book so far has been like people within Angmorebrook fighting one another. But uh, in a way, he is right. Nothing, even though like it's a horrible thing to say, nothing does unite people like a good war, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's sort of... Um you know, you see it in uh, the way wars are commemorated and memorialized a lot of the mm. time. Like, particularly, say, like World War Two in Britain, or to a certain extent, their own War of Independence. It is seen as just like you know, uh, sort of like oh, it goes without saying that we can all celebrate this. Yeah. In, in yeah. a way that you know, most issue other issues or historical events don't have that same presumption of you of unanimity. Mm. Uh, if I'm using the right word, of of like that. You know, of course, everyone feels, you know, broadly the same way about this event. Um, the one thing I, I did think was that they they do a good job of sort of deconstructing the idea of, of seeing how the more quirky and just see Clatch as this homogenous mass of kind of orientalist tropes and like greasy towel wearing, like, uh, what is it? Crazed savages who'll run at you trying to kill you, but run away once they get a taste of cold. Yeah. You know? um, and like that whole conversation with Colin and Nobby, where mm-hmm. Nobby's sort of wheedling and poking at like all the contradictory, massive stereotypes Colin mm-hmm. has, is really funny, but also you know quite clever as well. Um, and and you have that bit when uh, when Gareth is in the cells for his protection, um, and the other the kind of like Clatchian lobby group show up and accuse Vimes of like uh, you know arresting him um, well, yeah, yeah which I, I really like that bit too because it's it's kind of making him walk this, this fine line where you're, you're thinking from what you've seen oh you know this is bollocks Vimes is trying to help Gaurav but also if you put yourself in the shoes of any other clashing in the city like that's the, if you hear like like oh the watch have just taken Mr. Gaurav and his family and like taking him to the watch house yeah. you, you wouldn't think oh they must be protecting him you would of course think mm. um but uh, and then Gareth and uh, the other guy, I can't remember his name, the head of this lobby group, get into a big argument, and Carrot says that they're part of different, like uh, ethnic or cultural groups within religious groups. I think it is within within Clatch. Like I really like all of that, but I find weirdly, and maybe because we know much more about Angmore Park anyway, you don't see as much of it with Angmore Park. Like you have bits where like when Rust is, uh, relieves Vimes of his command and he goes to give it to Carrot and Carrot refuses and then gives to Colon and then the next one is Detritus and he just like can't even imagine giving it to a troll. Yeah. So like there is that sense of like in the same way that you have um, Prince Kadram is trying to unite all of uh, Clatch and obviously there are big parts of the you know Clatch that don't want this, that don't want to be you know suppressed and kind of um, amalgamated, absorbed into this big empire. Mm-hmm. Uh and to it, it, like on a smaller scale, Rust is like presumably sort of attempting the same thing in that like once the war starts, him and his kind of cronies in the aristocracy just instantly become in command, and they presumably just have armies full of humans. It's I don't think it's ever mentioned that there's any trolls or dwarves going off it with the regiments. No, but it's weird that that doesn't come up more. You know that like like you don't have. I think there's a great line in um, I think it's Snuff actually way down the line where. 
Angua thinks about the Angmorfork being a cultural melting pot, but she's like, it, you know, the pot only melts one way. Like, uh, you you only get by if you're a dwarf or a werewolf or a troll if you just act human, mm-hmm. and then you'll be tolerated. But, um, and I uh, I don't know. It, it feels like a bit imbalanced. That on the one hand you have these nice touches that show, oh, actually, Clatch isn't as homogenous as you think, and, like, what's ultimately going to bring down Prince Kadram, one of the things, other than veterinary's genius, is the fact that, like, a lot of Clatchians don't like what he's doing, and this mm-hmm. whole, this seemingly unstoppable war machine he had is founded on a kind of fragile base of being united. Um, and that you don't see that with Ankh Morpork as much. Like, okay, they're in different political situations, too, like... Kadram's almost trying to take over part of a continent and Ankh Park's just one city-state. But it feels weird that they, um, you have the us versus them and them are shown not to be quite as simple as you might think, but us is still more or less one group. Or maybe two yeah. with the like pro-war people like Rust on one side and you know Vimes and the rest of them on the other. It does seem, uh, now, I'm speaking largely not, not from like uh, what I've read in the books, but uh, simply because... I was thinking something similar the other day. I have this, uh, the map of the Discworld hanging up in my room, mm-hmm. and I was just looking at it, and like, I, was just, I wonder where exactly all these places are. It's one of the first times I've actually looked at the maps as well. They throw so many place names that you'd like to see, and um, the places that they mention in Clatch are well spread out. I mean, like, it'd be like, um, you know, all of North America is, like, you know, going up against Ireland. Yeah. You know, that kind of way. Because, like, Ag Morpork, like you said, is a tiny, tiny... Um, well, not tiny, it's a big city, like, it's one of the biggest cities in the world, but it is just a city, and, like, it has the likes of the Stowe Plains and Quirm, like, nearby, like, to, you know, uh, kind of back it up, but it is, the focus, as I said, is on uh, Angmorpork, and, as Angu said, it is a melting pot. I suppose it's easier, like, uh, there's less, um, uh, there's less uh, of this uh, idea of, you know, bringing everyone together under one banner, because I think... Once you're in Ankh Morpork, you're just an Ankh Morporky, and I think that's yeah. the point he's trying to make already. Like, whereas, um, like, I mean, the plot like says it quite plainly that like all the people that clash, they don't want to be united in the same way that Ankh Morpork. It kind of shows like one very strong difference between uh, Clatch and Ankh Morpork. Like, you know, the two uh, empires. Like, one is, you know, in a weird sort of way, you could say that like you know. Uh, it's kind of implied that Ankh Morpork represents order, whereas Clash represents chaos. Yeah, well, I mean, Cadrum is trying to bring in order by, uh, mm. I like that line about the, the, is it the sergeant thinking how, uh, why I'm spending all my life pacifying these outlying regions and they're always fighting, like, mm. you know, they're always seen as being uh, very uh, passive. Um, so he's kind of trying to bring order, but interestingly, that's seen, sort of seen as a bad thing, you know, that, mm. um, and, supposed to be an illegitimate thing for him to do which is fair enough it is kind of like a it's very much a like classical colonial thing um and it's interesting to see that presented as clatch rather than you know like ankh morpork which would usually be equated with uh the west or you know europeans versus clatch as a kind of arab world thing seeing that that thinking that would have been used just by colonialism in real life of you know uh, oh we're going to civilize and pacify these places mm. and bring peace and what it really means is you're going to take them over um <laughs> Yeah, like I, I, I think that's interesting. I just, I, I like. I think he depicts the whole political situation in Clatch with um, relative complexity, particularly that we don't really have a Clatchian main character. Um, Possibly uh, yeah. seventy-one hour Ahmed, but even him, he's he's uh, you know he's, he's only at the end. He yeah, he's a so, mysterious yeah. figure for most of it. Um, yeah, and I just thought like 
weirdly, maybe understandably, because we know it better, and Morpork seems like a little simpler here than mm-hmm. the kind of like complex mass of uh, factions and uh, species groups and so on that it was in Men at Arms or even mm-hmm. Feet of Clay, you know? Um, but uh, no, I think you're absolutely right. And it's just, and again, it co- I think it just comes down to, you know, this is something that war just does to people. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it, people uh, want war to be simple. And war does effectively make things simple. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's very true. Um, um, there's lots of, but the one thing that I, one thing that I particularly like about this is how, ultimately, you know, uh, the Clatchians aren't like, they aren't. This might be the wrong way to phrase this, but they aren't excessively othered. You know, they like, you know, it really highlights the similarities. I mean. First of all, the Gaurav's son and all that thing, but um, just in like the many uh, funny ways that like there's constant mix-ups in like you know who are we talking about the Angmorpoks and the Clatchians? There's that wonderful moment where uh, Veterinary says um, once Lesh has like risen up from the sea, this is oh they're just a bunch of unprincipled opportunists who are always ready to grab something for nothing, whereas uh, the Angmorporkins are like you know. Uh, intelligent entrepreneurs who like uh, are grasping opportunity yeah, you know, yeah. he basically phrases like the exact same thing but like you know one in a very positive like one in a negative and he says oh I appear to have read them the wrong way around you know so it's there's this constant like parallel between the two countries and you know the mixing of the two up which I really like <laughs> yeah yeah um, it's really good and I think yeah, it absolutely undercuts that whole idea of them being some like mysterious oriental country mm-hmm. um also, actually, just to cut in quickly, the um, the Dibbler prototype, which uh, which, I'll, I'll which they have they have, I think, in every other country. Like I, I can't remember. I know we're doing the last continent next, so I can't remember. But oh, I am certain. Yeah, I'm yeah. pretty certain there's a Dibbler there yeah. as well. Dibbler is like the uh, agent of like you know the, the world. He has to have one representative on each like continent or whatever. Yeah, he's in he's in Om he's in Omnia, um, and he's in uh, he's in uh, interesting times. Yeah, as well, he's in interesting times. And, yeah, I, I think there's a list of them somewhere. Um, <laughs> we should do that's something we should do sometime. A list of the best Dibbler. <laughs> the original, or is he the original? That's our more Porky and Bridges coming out. Um, uh, this I, I said about at the start about this kind of feeling to a certain extent. Like he has all these jokes and watch material that he wants to use. Hmm. I guess to use it. And part of the reason, um, and I don't mean that as a, you know, an enormous criticism because, as I said, a lot of the stuff he uses is really funny and sharp. But part of the reason, I think, is that like this sort of uh, feels like, like if you take this this book out, um, it doesn't, uh, and, and you're reading the watch books in order, it doesn't take away a huge amount no. um, in a way that, say, taking Men at Arms or you know, Nightwatch or something like that out would, because I'm thinking particularly here of Angua, who has this very much this arc from, you know, Men in Arms, and she joins the Watch, and uh, Carrot discovers she's a werewolf, and they get together, and then Fida Clay, and we talked about that, she's sort of unsure whether she should stay, or whether mm-hmm. she should go, and that culminates in uh, The Fifth Elephant. When she does, uh, yeah, basically effectively leave, yeah. Yeah, but here it's just sort of put on hold, like, mm. we don't really see it at all, and, and she actually... She seems to be quite a, a central character in this at the start when they're investigating who killed, um, or tried to kill, rather, Prince Kefora. And then she goes on a boat uh, and uh, Ahmed catches her. I do like that there's a part when, when she's just about to go on 
and Carrot's like, oh, you know, Kanoon's like, oh no, you you know, you shouldn't. Then she's saying, oh, it'll be fine. And she just thinks something kind of offhand, like they probably don't know anything about werewolves and Clatch. Mm. And it just means that then when you do have this moment that Amhead recognizes her as a werewolf and uh, puts the, the silver collar on, um, it doesn't feel like it's some sort of uh, superhuman moment of omnipotent villainy for him where like you know he's the only person oh bad luck for Angua the only person in Clutch who knows about werewolves having to be on this boat it was that like her I suppose her um, uh, impulsiveness just in this one moment of just sort of thinking and dismissing the risk of like oh it'll be fine because they probably won't know werewolves in, in, in Clutch means that like I, I feel like when you're reading that or at least when I was reading the first time I didn't think oh but what if they do I just assumed Okay, yeah, this is going to get Angua over into Clatch. Mm. So that moment of Ahmed, seeing, you know, knowing who she was and slapping the silver collar on came as quite a shock. And I, mm. I like that. Like I just think it's quite, you know, it's quite well. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so I was about to disagree with you. Then I realised, no, you're actually saying what I thought. So yes, you're absolutely right. But, yeah. um, but then, yeah, once she gets free, her part fades completely. Like she mm. has a bit at the end when she talks about Carrot and his appeal and things to. Uh, I think it's uh, Ahmed or, or Jabbar or someone, um, and that's pretty much it. Like she kind of completely fades, and it's it's very strange and feels kind of um, yeah, you, can, I throw, can I throw a bit of a curveball question at you now? Which like it isn't like massively underlined in this book, but I feel like that's kind of an issue. Do you think the romance, if you can call it that, between Carrot and Angua is a bit forced? Or, like, it's, you know, it's not really even really there. Because, I mean, every time you get a glance into uh, Angus in your inner monologue, she's constantly thinking, why am I with this guy? You know, like, what is it? like? And, like, every now and then it's kind of, you know, hastily glossed over. It's because, oh, because he's decent. Oh, I love him because, you know, he's honest or true or mm-hmm. whatever. But it's always just kind of flippant, kind of. Yeah, but you're still constantly, like, you know, what's what's Carrot's deal? He's, is he really this simple? You know, it's... Yeah, uh, I, I think... I think it is to an extent, but it's sort of meant to be in that mm. that's what's giving her doubts. Um, like, obviously, Carrot is a kind of super inhumanly charismatic and kind person. And mm. right now, well, uh, I don't know if any of us will ever meet anyone quite like that in our lives. If, if you do, listener, just let me know. <laughs> I'd love to know this person. Um, but uh, so, like, you know, did. The, the the attraction's obviously there and I think I think it's like suggested in Guards Guards that he can almost have his pick of all the uh, girls in Mrs. Pam's but he's just so innocent he doesn't realise they're um, they're prostitutes. But um but that she's I, I feel like even though I said Carrot's just kind of like deliberately fantastically perfect character, Anua's dilemma in being in a relationship with someone you think is better than you and you worry about like, well, like what do I bring to this really and do they you know do they really feel any stronger about me than they do about uh, in Carrot's case almost anyone or, yeah. but in, in, in reality it's usually done say most of the other people in cl- close people in their life I think that's really good and, and really relatable because it feels like kind of a selfish thing it's a difficult thing to word but ultimately when you are in a, a romantic relationship with someone you do want the feeling that like you're the most important person in their life or that mm. you know they see something special in you that they don't see anyone else and obviously you reciprocate this you know I wonder um, if that's why Angua uh, doesn't seem to get on with Vimes at the start because he's like the threat yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, there's a better love story between Carrot and Vimes yeah, than there is yeah it's true I think, I think she's reconciled it here and oddly I think mm. it's Vimes who's more worried about it here which I'll, I'll get to in a sec but um, 
But so yeah, that that kind of dilemma she has, I think, is 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 very relatable and well done. But because of that, I suppose it means we do see more of her worrying than what like I suppose from from we than we do from his side of just mm. thinking, oh yeah. Me and Angua, this is really, you know, really nice. Really love her. Presumably because it would take the tension out of any of the bits where we're in her head and she's worrying about it. Yeah. If we know that, like, you know, ah, oh, no, we, we've already had Carrot's point of view. And we never actually get Carrot's point of we view. We very yet. rarely do. Like, yeah. I mean, if there's ever a point that we kind of get a glimpse into what Carrot's thinking, it's nearly always how he's solving a case or something. It's never really how he's feeling. I think... The closest you ever ever get to it is when he's writing the letters to his parents, and then you and even then there's a still kind of a stilted general politeness about it. It's it doesn't really feel sincere. Like you get the sense that there's something. Yeah, there's yeah, a layer got a letter writing voice. Yeah, yeah, and the, but there's a there's a layer of something there, like some tinge of honesty in it that you kind of feel like, oh hmm. yeah, there's he always brings up vimes for one thing, you know. <laughs> And uh, a general kind of, you know, uh, forlorn homesickness in a mm-hmm. little bit, but not. It's it's it definitely decreases the more it goes on. I mean, I think he only writes one letter in this entire yeah, book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's very at much. the very very start. But like, I think if you go back to guards guards, he's writing a letter at the start of almost every paragraph mm-hmm. or something like that, which is a nice little touch. I think. Yeah, actually. yeah, absolutely. You can actually see it's it's interesting that Carrot's arc isn't conveyed in a traditional sense. You know, you get in a very skewed almost like a puzzle box kind of way which which you know it's mm-hmm. it can be frustrating if you're after a more traditional uh representation of a character but i think it uh it, it kind of works if you're if you're kind of open to it it, it works mm-hmm. mm. this will come up i think in, in fifth elephant people a lot of people have this it did give rise to this idea that Carrot's much more uh, clever and um, I suppose self-aware than he seems mm. because of so many events in that. But uh, I suppose we'll, we'll, we'll park that for the moment and and talk about that then. But uh, oh, oh, one thing with Carrot and Angua is I do love the the confidence he has in her that even though he's concerned for her and obviously wants to go after her, there's this feeling of like, no, I know she can take care of herself and like I, you know, I'm like I'm really, worried about every really foreign like country. That. But there's never she never becomes a damsel in distress no, even yeah. when she is. Uh, caught. but yeah as I said just with her in general it's very odd that she she's quite heavy, prominent in the early parts of the book and then fades out and we don't really get any more on the, her depressing issue of Feet of Clay I remember when we don't Feet of Clay like you were saying that was one of your few reservations about it was there was this you know leaving this thing hanging and it's you know and ultimately the, it just doesn't really go anywhere yeah well I mean it does in Fifth Elephant but it, it, it does in Fifth it, Elephant it, yeah, but, not but, here. but it doesn't here uh, Cheery is another one who obviously you know featured in a big way in Feedy Clay and will again as far as I remember in Fifth Elephant she's mm. quite prominent and here yeah she's not really um, yeah. prominent at all I, I, I mean I do think there's something to be said the fact that like you know as this you know what would you like the dwarf who's out of the gender closet and is in this really unusual position there's something quite like heartening and sweet about the fact that she is just this accepted as this very conventional competent member of the watch now and that like yeah I don't you know I, every bit about her isn't about like cheery the dwarf who's saying she's a, a you know a girl and no other dwarf will, will like it's just like cheery the the watch person who vimes is asking to do this job you know um, yeah, there's something to be said for that, but the two things don't have to be mutually exclusive either. Like here, we don't get any insight into her, uh, you know, personal life or uh, worries or motivations or so on. It's just mm. she's uh, so it's quite functional as as a character here, um, which 
Yeah, yeah, it's inter- we get more of Sybil than we had in the last two watchbooks, which is nice. Yeah. Um, I think um, the key thing, if you were to take one thing in terms of a narrative arc and like where things go in this book... What I feel we get the most out of is in Vimes and his relationship with the city of Ankh-Morpork and representing the city in a certain sense is the Watts themselves because you do have this very odd uh, plot thread that goes through the second half of the book where he picks up the wrong dimensional uh, disorganizer, which uh, basically he... Uh, just for our listeners, uh, at halfway point through the book, uh, Vimes decides to give chase with his um, his watchman after Angua, who is on the ship heading for Clatch. And he has a, this disorganizer, which has featured in the past two books, and it's basically just an imp who is just a source of annoyance. But in this one, he picks up a disorganizer, which is actually a parallel dimension disorganizer. It's just a freak chance. So... There's two uh, Commander Vibes, one that stays in Ang-Morpork and the other that is irrational and basically decides to chase Angua. So he picks the one, he picks up the disorganizer that is meant for the Vibes that stayed in Ang-Morpork. And as a result of that, the disorganizer keeps telling him about uh, appointments that he has and ultimately it culminates in uh, hearing all of his watchmen die. Yeah, yeah. Which is a very haunting moment and... It doesn't really lead anywhere in a narrative sense. Well, it, it doesn't that that's what, like, he, I think, drives him to breaking point where he almost kills Prince Gadrum because, uh, yeah, he's just he's thinking about that. Um, what's horrifying to uh, think as well is that the Vimes in the world where he stayed in Ankh-Morpork and everyone's getting killed is getting messages like, 3 p.m., arrest both armies. Yeah, <laughs> four p.m. peace talks and things like that. You know, yeah, um, God, while everyone's dying around them. Mm. But I feel like uh, the big thing here is that you know how in um, not so much in Feet of Clay, but certainly in Men at Arms, uh, Vimes has its own sort of a reluctance to this large, uh, larger Watchmen roster or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. You know, he's just. I remember the good old days when it was just me, Colon, and Nobby, and then Kara came along, and then it just kind of expanded. And it's kind of warming up to the idea slowly and slowly, and I feel like this point is the point where he's just, uh, he kind of welcomes the idea, and uh, he's more accepting of it. And actually, this gets kind of interesting, because I think the next book is very much embracing that. But the following book, Nightwatch, is where it all gets taken yeah, away from. Yeah. So it all goes reverts back to the beginning all over again, which is has to be said, is a great arc for a character. Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. That's almost um, like the reboot, actually, Nightwatch. <laughs> yeah, Nightwatch is a very much be careful what you wish for, like, mm. thinking, oh, the good old days. It's the, what's the, um, what's that Christmas film? Um, a Wonderful, a wonderful life. life. yeah. It's the Wonderful Life of uh, the, the Discworld. <laughs> um, I can't imagine Jimmy Stewart playing Vimes. Uh, I almost can, actually. <laughs> yeah, well, well, Lord Benari, you, you can't treat people like this. <laughs> It's in Bill's house, in Ted's house. Um, New Year's Steve on Twitter, at uh, Calablaster, said, suggested we definitely do two different episodes that diverge at a critical point and end in very different ways. <laughs> I wonder how... New how Year's we... Steve, that's a good suggestion, but we're too lazy to do two different episodes <laughs> on, the, on the same book. I don't know, if you can pause it here, we'll know this is the point when we come back after... 
and we're just like, okay, we're done now. <laughs> we have a massive falling out or something. <laughs> but but what you're saying about Vines, I like it. Uh, there's a bit early on where he's like got to give a talk to all the Watchmen, mm. and he just feels really sort of overwhelmed, and he's thinking, I don't even know half these people. And there's this sense throughout it about him really worried, feeling supplanted by Carrot. Uh, in that, like, I think there's a point where Cheery goes to get him. And she goes, he, she, he says, like, oh, he came to me. And she says, oh, I couldn't find Captain Carrot. And he, mm. he um, and the, when he, again, when he, he meets the Gauroffs and he thinks, like, oh, you know, I've lived here all my life and Carrot knows these people better than I do. And, like, when he's seeing all these Watchmen, he doesn't know. And Carrot's like, oh, well, you, you know, you confirmed it, sir. But he's thinking, well, ultimately, it was Carrot who hired yeah, him. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. you know, there's paperwork's on his desk. And that culminate, like, I mean, I, I, I think that's all really interesting. And, again... Similar to like Angu's relationship card, very relatable. Where like we've all been in those situations where you feel kind of inferior to someone, um, but you're in a position of seniority or something. Yes, yeah, so you uh, can't read like you know you, uh, you can't just defer to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, yeah, like and it's it's difficult to manage. And I mean, it's it's uh, I think it's made all the more complex and also sweet by the fact that we see so much of how like um, how much carrot respects Vimes, you know, even though Vimes mm-hmm. feels this way. Uh, like he would never consider himself a better copper than than uh, than Vimes. Even in Vimes, I think Carrot's a better copper than he is. But it's weird that it culminates quite like maybe a third way through the book with the moment where Rust strips Vimes of command and offers it to Carrot. And there's a line where it says, "But like Vimes closing his eyes," and it's it really seems it's quite minimal. But the sense I got was that you know he's dreading this moment now, or like like Carrot's gonna become the commander, and like will he ever you know even if Rust gets turfed out. Will he ever get anywhere near it again once once Carrot's there and he's perfect and so on? And then Carrot, of course, turns it down because he can't conceive of being, you know, a watch without Vimes. Mm. Um, and it's just obviously with this wonderful moment of loyalty that's quite underplayed. Like, you don't have Vimes coming up to Carrot and saying, oh, thank you, Carrot, for, you know, that or whatever else. Uh, but it does mean that that kind of, like, little mini arc uh, between, like, the Vimes and Carrot and Vimes' feelings of, as you were saying, like being unable to cope with the new expanded thing of the watch ends kind of early on and then it becomes this chase instead. Mm. Um, yeah, and actually I, lo- I love how uh, in some ways Carrot is kind of taking this into his own hands and I think this is going to be, this is something I've been really looking forward to asking you about considering uh, what you're currently working on in your PhD is uh, there's a point towards the very end where the two armies are playing a football match <laughs> and you have uh, basically sport as a substitute of war. Yeah. And, I th- like, it's it's so throwaway. Like, the first couple of... I think I've read this twice before. And the first two times, I thought I was nothing of it. I just thought, oh, that's a funny image. Two armies, like, you know, playing football. Ha, 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 what a ridiculous idea. But now that I'm reading it this time around, it's like, holy shit, that is... That's pretty much what happens whenever, like, there's a... Mi- I mean, we just came out of, you know, the Six Nations, like, just recently, and I'm like, oh, my God, that's that's basically what was happening on screen the entire time. I didn't well, realise it. We're at a war with Britain no, I know, France, but, sorry, really, before but, you know, like, Six Nations started. Like, the war, like, you know, it's 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 like a... Like, it, it's in a, some kind of ways, it's a substitute for war. It's like, it unites nations, you know, gets both people behind it. It turns... It turns a battle, in inverted commas, battle into um, a very simple thing, you know, it's us versus them, and it's very simply who will win, you know? Yeah, yeah, there's there certainly, there's something you said for over the, the football thing is actually a, a historical nod to the um, Christmas truce they had in World War One. 
Oh yeah, yes, the, yeah. The Germans and the English played football with each other. I mean, I, I remember being at like uh, I was uh, over in France for uh, the Euro twenty sixteen, following Ireland, and I was in um, you know it, I was at the our match against Sweden and Italy, and the Sweden match like I I spent that night you know I I remember we were on the uh, on the the Paris Metro going to the ground. And it was like so incredibly packed. There was a point where I literally worried for my own safety. I thought like, or for other people's as well. I was thinking someone's going to, you know, get suffocated here. This mm-hmm. is, but then it just became this kind of wonderful early slapdash thing where you had all the Swedes down one and the Irish up the other. And everyone was just sort of chanting at one another. And then occasionally uh, some Irish person would turn around to a Parisian, squeeze the next one. Like, oh, look, I'm really sorry about all this. <laughs> <laughs> and then they'd be like, no, no, it's fine. And then the doors opened and all these fans, it's like big wall of yellow and big wall of green come out and just like walk alongside each other all chanting ole, ole, ole as we walk up to the, <laughs> to the ground. And then you get there and there's like, uh, you know, Irish fans dancing with Swedish fans and like uh, singing chants. And I ended that night sitting under the Eiffel Tower with a friend of mine drinking a bunch of bottles of beer we had bought off some lads uh, on the street with three Swedish guys we had just met um, <laughs> and then a bunch of Croats and Germans came up and, and we joined them and, and more Irish and I, I remember I was quite drunk and sentimental and I was just thinking like this is it this is what this is what like all that you know UEFA FIFA PR bullshit about family of football and festival of football this is what it actually looks like when it's real it's wonderful like these are you know I'm, 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 like these are complete strangers and I'll never do anything like this again and then you got and, a reminder on your phone saying murder all the Swedes <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is for the Viking invasion <laughs> um, no but, but I, I, I thought that was kind of wonderful I don't want to um I'm I'm a, I'm a huge uh, sports fan, particularly football, and I don't want. I'm I'm kind of starting probably biased, so I don't want to get too sentimental about that and just be like, yes, it's this wonderful thing that can cure a war, because in a lot of situations it has been used to stoke the uh, flames of kind of really mm. um, nationalism and xenophobia, whether like it's uh, the Berlin Olympics in in 1936 or like Mussolini's Italy team winning the uh, winning two World Cups, and um, yeah, there's innumerable situations like that. Um, not least the way some of the parallels between the kind of uh, rushing and hooliganism and uh, stuff that the kind of very much us against the world xenophobic nationalism that Putin is mm. propagating at the moment. So it can swing both ways. Like, you know, I, I think yeah. sport can kind of, football can sort of uh, contribute to these things, but it also kind of diffuses the situation. And I think in most academic circles I see, um, the like convention is to read it as like, you know, uh, war minus the shooting, as George Orwell said, like to read yeah. this thing that is just there to act as a proxy to, you know, uh, xenophobic feelings of patriotism and sort of keep them warmed up until the next war. Yeah. And I think while I can do that, I think that's a much simpler reading of it than is actually, oh, yeah. the, uh, than is actually the case. It's and certainly it more did warm yeah. the cockles of my heart to see Pratchett uh, look at the other side of it here when it's this mm. thing that's used to diffused uh, tensions between although um, the, no, when you say that and, well diffused to a certain extent yeah it's apparently an incredibly filthy match they have that feeds into exactly what you're saying because like you know it, it is a very simplistic view to say that like oh the two different sides of the army there's played football it's not just kind of a namby-pamby oh it's all peaceful now you know there's a disgraceful amount of fouls like I think and Morepork at one point are winning by a hundred and something like fouls <laughs> or something like that. So, you know, it's obviously very vicious, but by the same token, nobody's being killed. So, you know, it's 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 a it's a complex metaphor that I think works particularly nicely and I actually wish was explored much more. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it may 
feel weird actually, particularly when you get that line about like Vimes musing football as a substitute for war. It maybe it felt odd that like oh we've got to wait another twenty books before he actually addresses this in some detail. Yeah, because it really feels like it's it's on his mind at the mm. at the end of that. Um, I just wanted Lord Rust to give the uh, the um, there's a famous uh, match in the nineteen sixty two World Cup between Chile and Italy. Uh, gone in history is the Battle of Santiago because it was incredibly dirty like they're just you know giving each other boxes and like like all sorts <laughs> of stuff going on and uh, famously on the BBC show it, it had an introduction from legendary commentator David Coleman who began saying good evening the game you're about to see is the most stupid violent <laughs> idiotic and unsportsmanlike game of football in history Chile versus Italy and I, I sort of I wanted Lord Russ to give a similarly kind of like uh, you know toe faced uh, like like um, killjoy in, uh, introduction or assessment of the Angmore Pork clutch <laughs> that would have been absolutely fantastic and certainly like a part of Russ's character who I feel like I mean I could be wrong but he does show up in previous books doesn't he and he does actually funnily enough the first one I believe he shows up in is Men at Arms, where he's kind of a different character. Uh, like there's the off chance that yeah, it could he? be his father or his uncle or something, mm. but I don't think it's I don't think it's the case. Yeah, he's very um, he's one of the more like level headed, adaptable nobles. Yeah. Like he's the one who's sort of calming Edward Diet down about this, uh, you know, his big grand dreams of reviving the monarchy. Yeah, um, and from here on, Rust is very much the the go to for the like upper class idiot. Um, He's like Lord Melchit in the the fourth series of Blackadder. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, yeah, uh, I think um, in what's it in Night Watch? You know when he he comes and he takes briefly brief command of the watch and mm. um, it does. Um, it seems like this is kind of falling into um, uh, Terry Pratchett's usual trap of you know the semi one two dimensional um, villain. You know that you, you kind of it's and but it, it, you know some sort of way it works in this book because it kind of falls under the whole idea of you know wanting war to be simple you want to have it us versus them and if you took it at a purely narrative point of view Rust is the closest we get to a villain in yeah, this yeah yeah really it's Rust and Prince Cadram and I think it's interesting that we don't see a whole lot of either of them yeah um, particularly Cadram and I think. I, I sort of like that here. I remember I, I, I brought up a quote from Snuff earlier, but I've only read Snuff the once, and one of the things I didn't like about it was that the villain, who I believe one of the main ones is a kind of a relative of Rust, they stay completely off screen, and there's a sort of lack of tension uh, mm. from it. Whereas here, I feel it sort of works because the whole thing is about like Vimes and a watch struggling with these. Right, so for those of you wondering, that wasn't the audio equivalent of Franz Kafka's The Castle, where we cut off mid-sentence. We actually had some technical hitches and lost a good 20 or 30 minutes of the recording after that. So what we're going... Unfortunately, we only noticed a while later uh, and had a bit of trouble figuring out exactly what we had spoken about that um, hadn't been covered by the recording. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to uh, summarize in brief what we discussed in that um, lost period that has passed into the ether before uh, before wrapping up. Um, so, uh, yeah. 
sorry about that, but if this is the worst technical hitch we have to deal with, we'll be doing uh, very well. Okay, so this is essentially the divergent path that we were talking yeah, about. Yeah, so, uh, this ties, ties in, yeah, so the other one is lost forever, so we can assume that we both died in the other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the one that luckily we're still alive. We'll, we'll, be getting, we'll be getting like tweets from someone in a parallel dimension. Yeah. <laughs> so how come you guys ran for president? I didn't see that coming. Um, so we were talking about the last thing we were talking about was the, the idea of and yeah. the, the fact that like Cadrum's very much an off-screen uh, villain and I was saying I felt it kind of worked here because it it sort of shows that the whole threat is way beyond the scope of what Vimes and the Watch mm. normally deal with and it is a matter of being able to just find one person and you know getting them and then stopping the the uh, war that worked here and then we kind of dovetail that into the business with Vimes and Ahmed that it kind of plays up to that that Vimes almost gets uh, obsessed with finding mm. Ahmed uh, and that will somehow um, do something um, and then of course it doesn't uh, and we're debating whether how the plot gets sort of nebulous and vague whereby mm. Vimes goes into the de- go, follows Ahmed ostensibly to get Angio back and then seems to sort of forget about that and get caught up with this idea that he knows the Dregs have captured him and the watch just to stall them on Ahmed's orders. And he goes after him in the desert and figures out he's a policeman too. And then likewise, even after they get Angua back, they just it's hard to see what their plan is or their mm-hmm. motivation. They hang around and then the two armies show up. Yeah, we argued a little bit about um, whether this actually made the book, you know, is it... Is the story, you know, just does it falter a little bit at this point or does it serve the overarching theme of it very well? Yeah. In the fact that, you know, they're just caught up. And, you know, I was, I was saying that whole idea of um, that quote of Vimes where he says, soldiers don't die because uh, for honour, they die because they're told, uh, told to. Uh, so, you know, this whole idea that when you're caught in a war, you know, you're fed this propaganda, you're fed this like these ideals and you're just kind of going along and doing what you're told. It's not really a case of, I know exactly what I'm fighting for and I believe in everything I'm fighting for. It's kind of, you know, painted in broad strokes that, you know, I'm English, you're German. That's, er, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of way. Yeah, there's very much a sense that they're kind of past the point of just being able to choose what and when and how they want to fight and they're just stuck doing it and in a way even though he's against the war volumes is no no different mm. um but uh yeah I, I think we went on to talk about it. i i just love that confrontation they have in the desert a lot i i like the bit where vimes is looking at the uh, city that general tacitus built before it and that trade of vimes reading tacitus's book to kind of get to grips with this situation that again is is very much beyond the scope of what he's dealt with and the idea of Tacitus as this person who went uh, beyond the silly, arbitrary, you know, um, faux, honourable rules of war that the likes of Rust follow. And then that his city just went away when it says the wind changed. And we had a couple mm-hmm. of lines like that about the wind changing and similarly how like Lesp was presumably this civilization that was just uh, submerged in the water one day. The idea that all this earthly, mortal glory and fighting and war is so uh, fleeting. Actually, that's something that I never even thought of, the fact that, like, Lesp is, like, literally the rise and fall of an empire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, certainly from all that, like, uh, almost uh, Lovecraftian um, 
architecture and mosaics and mm. octopuses, you get the sense that like whoever was originally there wasn't either more porky or Clatchian. I think it yeah. really makes some reference to like how some of the buildings of they've, they've had like Angmorpork styles or Clatchian styles like built on top of them. I I actually felt you know the way I read that was this is actually a divergent path. We really are talking about <laughs> different things that we yeah. talked before. But uh, the way I read that was was kind of a little bit of a hint towards like uh, the way the island like rises and falls. So, you know, like maybe they build certain houses or whatever, then it falls and when it rises again, they kind of modernize it a little bit by throwing on some more modern aspects of it. You know, the island yeah. falls again, comes yeah. back up and they throw more onto it. So they're constantly building upon this foundation as opposed to what they would normally do. Whereas they'd like, you know, just knock something down and start again. Or, although, you know, sometimes they do do that, but it makes more sense Mm -hmm. in, like, you know, a building that doesn't sink into the ocean every couple of, like, months. Yeah, that's it. Ultimately, it's also futile because it just goes away. Mm. There's, um, yeah, some nice bits about that, about, like, in the the path of time and nature, what's the point of all this Mm. um, war? I know, I was saying, I much I like that confrontation with Vimes and Ahmed of Ahmed's... uh, highlighting Vimes as kind of um, prejudice or what's what's termed, I don't like the term, but I suppose what might, you know, I call reverse racism of how he, like, refuses to suspect the Clatchians mm. and in that he's kind of doing them a disservice. Um, and I, you, you said you weren't mad about it because of all the uh, exposition, but I said, I, I like, having kind of being fed in a diet of Poirot and Holmes, mm. I loved those, like, here's how the mystery was, uh, you know, was solved and here, here's what it meant for it. And I loved the part where uh, Vimes who's very much overwhelmed and outmatched by on the back foot uh, with Ahmed for a lot of it has this one moment of overcoming him when he realises that he's uh, Ahmed deliberately setting the embassy on fire to find a way to uh, spirit Princess Kafora to safety endangered the lives of the, the woman and child in yeah. the place and that this is the one thing where um, Vimes is you know moral sense overwhelms any sense of kind mm. of a uh, fear it's a great symbolic um, moment that yeah, actually it, even yeah. though it just works really well in terms of like action and narrative you know it's just, it's great it's really good there's a lot of like you know moments like that that kind of just work you know they're very entertaining they're very, very good to read but they serve a dual purpose of like you know um, you know rep- being representative of something that's going on like in the the subtext like we, we discussed the uh, veterinary learning to juggle mm-hmm. or not learning to juggle just juggling like he'd never done it before he juggles and it's just no problem whatsoever and he says to call on so you know oh, well you know when you've dealt with politics you know just keeping the balls in the air and know where, knowing where they all are at the one time it's easy you know so mm-hmm. it's like wow that's it's a great moment yeah you you were saying i think this is another part that was lost to uh, posterity even you, you like the conversation with Colin and Navi where they're watching the ship being painted? Yeah, when they're uh, watching the sh- uh, they're p- the sailors painting the pride of Ankh-Morpork and uh, Colin and Navi have noticed that he's left the E out, so it's the pride of Ankh-Morpork, and they're waiting for him to notice. And it's wonderful that the entire time that they're doing this, they're discussing uh, you know how the Clatchians are different from them and how you know they uh, lazy good for nothings don't do an honest day's work in their life like uh, Gaurav who works only 14 hours a day in his like clatchy and takeaway or that sort of thing and it's a great moment when um, you know they're discussing all this and, and they're making themselves seem very you know nationalistic and uh, patriotic but it's a really skewed example of it much like the the sign the pride of New York which again a great moment um, 
there was something else at that point that I wanted to bring yeah, up. The whiteness is a state of mind. Like. That's right, yeah. Colon at one point says uh, white is a state of mind when uh, Nobby points out that I think it's the Omnians are, some of them are, no, what was it? Some of the Clatchians in the city are yeah. sort of white. No, it's, um, I think he brings up a visit and how he's Omnian and he's like, uh, you know, um, uh, like he's brown like the Clatchians, and, mm. but he's also like, good and on their yeah, side yeah yeah it's like it's white isn't like you know about the color of your skin it's about uh just actually and you now something that's just popped into my head there now i love how we're coming up with new points here do you know the point where um nobby is talking about his tattoo and mm-hmm. how like uh the skin uh like you know the skin cells apparently like replace every five years so how come i still got the same tattoo and it's a very funny humorous bit but it does sort of underline the whole idea is like you know, skin like color doesn't matter at all one little bit. You know, yeah, it's... yeah, absolutely. And of and of sort of transitoriness that even the atoms in your body are replaced every seven years. So, mm. you know, these kind of bids for everlasting glory and war and things like that are essentially utterly meaningless, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um what are the points that we come up with, Callum? I know we had more. Oh, <laughs> It's amazing. We we, we had so many good points. Oscar winning ones, I yeah, think. Yeah, perception of how they would read this world um, forevermore. I think. Pretty much. Yeah. Had, had this been kept. Uh, well, yeah, I'm looking through notes as you've gotten here. Uh, oh, you know, Stooley, um, the Null. Oh, I just want to bring that up. Actually, I never, I never, we never came back to it, or we never came to it. Actually, the first time around, that's really odd. That moment in it. I, it, I, I, I don't really understand the point of it because okay, well, I'll, I'll tell you the point is Stooley is a null and they're trying to solve uh, attempted assassination and Angua says he's so dirty he's got grass growing out of him so Stooley in this case of trying to solve an assassination with a lone bowman is a grassy oh no. my god <laughs> oh my god <laughs> Are you serious? Because <laughs> I was trying to find like what is the point of this character? Like I mean, like what is Terry Pratchett trying to say? And oh my god, the fact that it's basically boiling down to a pun is just hilarious. Oh my god, do you think is there anything else to him? Yeah, though? I mean, I suppose he enriches the general sense of Michael Moorpork because this place where you have all these different species living, and, and the sort of sense of a. Uh, um, like hierarchy there that knows are looked on as really filthy and like I think later one of the beggars is talking to Rust and he calls him that bastard Stooley or something. Mm. Um, but do you know what? So, so that there's, like there's it. I, I said earlier about how is it weird that the interspecies prejudice is sort of largely forgotten in the face of this you know interracial prejudice, mm. but you do see bits of it you know still present here, and also then the sense of that this. Um, in the same way that they talk about like that, like people like Gara for obviously these, you know, uh, people who've made a home and a contribution to the community in Angkor Park and are suddenly arbitrarily being turfed out and turned against. Mm. You have someone like Stooley who's quite derided and, you know, uh, people, he repulses people, but as Carol points out, they help keep the um, cities clean by going after all the rubbish and picking it up and eating it and so on. It felt strange to me because I kind of drew comparisons between the Nalls and the Golems in Feet of Clay. Because you know how in Men at Arms, uh, the topic of racism is raised and, you know, well, true speciesism. And then in Feet of Clay, it's explored a little bit further because, you know, Angu is saying, uh, oh, you know, 
the one thing like the undead are kind of like much lower than trolls and dwarves but the one thing the undead really can't stand are the unalive you know so it shows usually extreme levels of racism i think we linked that into um you know this whole idea of uh bisexuality in the lgbtq lgbt yeah that thing <laughs> that, 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 that can you <laughs> you know, no, like, no, I know that idea you know how there is like you know discrimination uh, within, uh, within minority groups, groups. Would, yeah within yeah. minority groups within uh, that the world isn't simply divided into yeah. the discriminators and the discriminated against you this know, sort like, of you felt like people who are discriminated against discriminating against other people um, yeah this sort of felt like a repeat of that and I didn't really see the point of it except unless it was simply to say this is just something that isn't going to go away no matter what. Mm. Because in some senses, it's kind of cleaned up in Feet of Clay. It's like, oh, we've accepted Dorfel into the watch. He's one of our own now. But we still have this other, you know, it's always going to be a constant like thing. There's always going to be some other group that their people are going to point their finger at and say, well, we don't like them. You know, we don't like your kind around here. Mm-hmm. And uh, I suppose that does kind of tie in with the the whole sudden sparking of this anim- animosity towards the Clatchians. Like, you know, suddenly there's always going to be this, like, you know, tension and suddenly it can snap at any point, so... I don't know. That's just one opinion, but yeah. I, I much prefer the idea of it simply being a grassy knoll. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I don't know which he came up with first, but I, I definitely think that was probably irresistible once the point entered his head. Absolutely, like, I, yeah. I've got to get this in. Um, one thing, just before we realised that this... Uh, <laughs> that our little machine had ran out of battery, a question that I'd thrown at you was... The idea of Leonard de Quirm potentially oh, yeah. being representative of nuclear weapons. And the reason I brought this up was because, first of all, he's a very destructive force in some ways because he's constantly coming up with these like incredible war machines that are like almost representative of modern war machines, you know, the likes of the submarine, the catapults, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Et um, but because he's got Where such... Did you get the point of the submarine as well? Which one was this? Well, that's called The Boat. The boat and what, what's the most like the most maybe the most famous film about a submarine is the German film Das Boot. Oh which means the boat. <laughs> oh, I didn't I didn't pick up on that actually. God. But um, yeah, you know how uh, like Leonard's uh, attention span is so limited because he's fascinated mm-hmm. by everything that he can't really hold on to an idea for long enough. So uh, you know he equates painting you know the intricacies intricacies of a daisy with you know coming up with a war machine that could devastate entire civilizations you know so basically the reason like he, he's unstable in a sense so veterinary kind of just keeps him locked away but he's something that he could utilize if he ever needed to like he did in this situation but very tactfully yeah so um i don't know what what are your thoughts on this well i remember someone saying that uh and, and i never got this the first time i was reading it but that um when when veterinary gets the thing from the aquarium and it's this silver tube that the, like it's almost teasing the idea that it's some kind of like proto nuclear weapon mm-hmm. that he has and he he says i've got something that will end the war with clatch immediately and when he goes and he's there and he starts to open it vimes just instinctively backs away yeah. um and it isn't something that jumped out at me having you know read it the first time around but uh, like i can sort of see it all is setting him up as you know um like okay, veterinary is touring to this guy who's incredibly this incredibly intelligent inventor engineer figure uh, for help winning the war. What thing do you think an incredibly helpful uh, or incredibly um, intelligent inventive engineer figure would come up with to end the war? Um, 
and there, yeah, there's certainly a sense of I, I can't remember whether it's in this or um, what's the last one he's in was it Men in Arms where he um, he comes up with some kind of design for like a really horrible weapon, some kind of like flame tossing trebuchet, <laughs> and he says so it would end war because no one would ever use it, like no one would ever, be, yeah. and and that's very much the whole. Uh, mutually assured destruction doctrine in the cold war the idea of like well nuclear was impossible because no one will ever you know actually want to use these weapons or want the other side to use them um which obviously wasn't tremendously reassuring in times like the cuban missile crisis or things like that uh but him having that like that way of thinking about these weapons of mass destruction does definitely echo that Mm. um so yeah I, i think he sort of has he, he kind of has this um, uh, potential, and it's it, um, this situation with people like um, Rust and so on, and war fever sweeping like Moorpork. I suppose kind of works to justify Veterinary's decision just to lock him up somewhere, yeah. because otherwise he'd end up like the people working on the Manhattan Project in World War Two or something like that. Like he'd be, you know, if he was just out and about in the streets, he would be shanghaied by Rust and to coming up with some terrible weapon and he probably wouldn't even realise it's, you know, half as destructive mm. as it is or so on. Absolutely, yeah. No, I think there's definitely something there. It's just the fact that, particularly the way he keeps him stowed away, like, in, like, a room, like, away from everybody, it just kind of reminds me of, um... Well, actually, what it kind of reminds me of is the end of Indiana Jones and, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, when they store, like, this, uh... the Ark of the Covenant in this massive warehouse, like, and... You're wondering, my God, how many weapons are there? And you always see, like, just bits of paper around Leonard Aquarium's place that has, like, you know, random inventions. And he's got little knickknacks and things like that. It's like any one of them almost potentially could be something absolutely devastating in the wrong hands. And Veterinary just keeps it locked away. And it's like, it's there. It's something that can be used, but let's not use yeah. it. You know? So it's, yeah, it's a thing. Um, uh, what else have we got? Have we got? I think we we've covered most of what we uh, were talking about before yeah. the battery went. Um, if we've um, if we've covered all we got to say, we did have one or two questions on on the Twitter, um, the Twitter sphere, eh? The Twitter sphere to to address. Uh, yeah. So, uh, Stephanie uh, Sojono at Lindblom. Um, says uh, just the Iraq war versus Jingo maybe in reference to my kind of call for uh, comments or questions on Jingo and it's certainly interesting it obviously it predates the Iraq war by by a good few years but it's it's after the Gulf War and uh, have you read um, Only You Can Save Mankind? Yeah it was years and years and years ago so uh, yeah I couldn't really I, I can barely remember the plot of it I'm being honest uh, it's, it's, uh, it's very much framed against the background of the Gulf War like mm. the, the kind of war the video game aliens are having is uh, paralleled a lot with the the Gulf War, so like I, I think that was obviously a big influence on on Pratchett. And he's tapping into a lot of like it, it parallels a lot with World War One. The whole it'll be over by Hogswatch. Um, sure. The idea of just these like this kind of uh, upper crust of like military men who are just like suddenly. Uh, stroll into the halls of power and are you know expected to raise their own regiments by virtue of um, mm. good breeding to quote Rust is very much something uh, more in line with uh, World War One and pre World War One conflicts than um, done more modern conflicts. Um, but uh, and and uh, like a lot of the uh, 
Orientalist uh, tropes about you know the um, stereotypes around the Clatchians are older than the Gulf War, but they mm. certainly re-emerged a lot in, a, in and around um, the Gulf War. There's certain the, aspects of it that do reflect a more uh, modern way of thinking, though. One thing that I thought really jumped out at me, and I'm a little bit ashamed that I found myself kind of being lulled into the trap the book sets up, is um, the point where Rust says. Well, Vimes, you know, you being a military man, and uh, Vimes just freezes. He says, I'm a policeman, not a military man. So it's basically yeah. the same thing, isn't it? It's like, no, it's not. And uh, I found myself thinking, like, uh, thinking before, I was like, well, it's got, no, God, what am I thinking? No, it's not. Absolutely not. Like, Yeah, uh, well, I mean, it's interesting giving, uh, I, I think, you know, particularly in, in America, they criticize what they call like the militarization of the police a lot. In terms this, of is what, the, this is why the I was thinking. They use and yeah, the role they're expected to serve in society. Yeah, it's absolutely, it, it's very resonant with that, that you have in, in Vimes, and this paradigm of policing, who sees the things as, uh, you know, military and police as entirely distinct, yeah. it's completely wrong that they should ever... And there's that wonderful uh, moment meet. where he's uh, leading the parade, and he's looking at that truncheon, and he's wondering, he's like, it's a completely useless, stupid thing, why couldn't it be something useful like a sword? And then he thought about what he thought, and then he says, now he realized why well, he could never, ever be a sword. Mm -hmm. That's a great moment when he says yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I like those. Um, uh, like, I, I suppose, whether or not you're reading this, whatever your kind of experience or thoughts on the police force in your own country or, like, you know, mm -hmm. in, in, in worldwide are uh, at the moment, I think, like, like, these books give a really good idea into like the ideal of what they could or should be mm. without being, you know, I don't know, too utopian or over idealistic. Like Absolutely. It gives them yeah. a lot of struggle against them, gives them a lot of flaws. But yeah, those kind of talks where Vimes makes those divides between military and police. Mm. Um, I yeah, do really feel, um, actually just bringing it back to the comparing Jingo with the Iraq war, I do think that ties into what we were saying earlier about the whole ideal of, um, you know, people wanting it to be a real simple thing and the demonization of like a particular dictator. So like, I mean, both in terms, actually this kind of relates to, you know, to the Afghanistan as well. So like, you know, so you have Osama bin Laden, but you also have Saddam Hussein mm -hmm. as well. Like, and it just kind of focuses in on these figures and just these figures more than, uh, you know, the extremely complex political situation the entire thing is. Mm -hmm. And um, also the idea of propaganda as well feeding into it. There's definitely a lot to be said about it, all right? Yeah, and I, I think that the Lesh does have a, actually a few interesting parallels with the whole weapons of mass destruction debate. That um, it's a kind of emperor's new clothes thing, like with the you know weapons of mass destruction. You had a few different people who are saying, well, actually, you know, the information that says Saddam Hussein has was pretty dubious mm -hmm. the whole time. The uh, the government line was no, no, they're definitely there, and we need to fight this. And likewise, at Lesh, while nobody predicts it's going to sink again until mm -hmm. Bettinari and uh, Leonard have a look. Um, you do have Vimes and even detritus kind of wondering like well, what's what's the point of fighting this, of fighting yeah. about this thing and why are we suddenly so concerned about it? Um, so with with the comparisons with the Iraq War, there is that idea of this. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm pronouncing this wrong, but Kosciuszko, which is the like you know term for like a, a kind of a reason or a legitimate motivation to go to war. Mm. There's a sense of that being this really invented kind of paper thin thing Absolutely, that's uh, yeah, yeah that can that can kind of fall apart under closer examination so that the uh uh yeah the, the leaders involved are just kind of like sticking to this one very narrow line on it absolutely yeah yeah and like i think the, yeah that's uh underlined and articulated really really well in like the two fishermen's sons who just kind of 
speak all these thoughts very very plainly you know to like you know why, why can't we just share the island or you know uh why can't we just ask them for some food and that sort of thing you know and um yeah there there, there is definitely a lot of that sort of thing in there mm-hmm. um, um yeah, the other the other comment was new year steve just said uh how much uh, he liked this book um and uh, like feet of clay was still his favorite i don't know whether he means his favorite watcher this is his favorite uh this book in general uh, but he fancies it with colon and um Nobby and the rest of them hilarious mm. and um lastly i do think that it's it's probably the best of colon and Nobby we've seen in any book like uh i i, I think i agree with uh new year steve that uh i think feet of clay probably is still my favorite watch book not sure if it's still i think we both agreed that lords and ladies well, well that's that's our unanimous favorite mm-hmm. book but um certainly there are bits in this that are the best of some of the characters and i think nolan and no nolan yeah. and cobby <laughs> <laughs> colon and nobby it's uh, for them in particular it's uh, yeah that's definitely their shining moment it's always the bit that i think of whenever i think of them actually yeah yeah likewise i think uh lastly on our facebook some jackass called steve asked is steve that charming in real life um i don't know man how could he be <laughs> well define charming would be my question um i think meta is the <laughs> meta charming meta charming really uh, well i suppose we better do the pleasant business of ranking yeah the old ranking indeed indeed so for any of you who are listening to us for the first time with this episode we're essentially building a ranking of uh, our favorite or what we consider the, the best Discworld books in order as we go along. So, you know, each book we get to, we slot it in for the first time into this rankings. So right now we've read the first 20 books. Uh, we've got a, we've got um, the, those 20 ranked. Uh, at the top is Lords and Ladies and at the bottom is Eric. Um, and we'll see where this one fits. So, I mean, the obvious points of comparison are the other watch books. So we've got Men at Arms at number nine, Guards Guards at number five, and Feet of Clay at number two. Um, so we this, had Men at Arms below Guards Guards, did we? Huh. Yeah. Okay. Um, is this better than Feet of Clay? No, I don't think this is. I I don't think we. I mean, even though there's a lot to like about this, and even though the main concern that I have, and I'm sure you do as well, is how you know messy the narrative gets towards the middle or towards the end, rather. And even though that might serve the purpose of the book, it doesn't really make for as enjoyable experience as Feet of Clay does. So I don't think it's as good as Feet of Clay. Yeah, yeah, I think Feet of Clay is like both totally plotted and has just pretty amazing ideas and characters. Absolutely. Is it better than Garrett's Garrett's? Again, we're kind of getting into similar territory. I think Garrett's Garrett's reads much better, but I don't know if it's as ambitious as this. It's definitely closest to Garrett's Garrett's. Um, but because Guards Guards introduces all these characters and it does a lot in its quite it's much smaller book it's quite quite a small book Guards Guards and mm-hmm. it does a lot in it um, and it's a really really good story I really yeah, enjoy yeah. reading it it's, and it also delves a little bit into politics as well so um, I would say no but not by a huge amount I'd say it's not much worse than Guards Guards, at least. Okay, so what about Men at Arms? Is it better or worse than Men at Arms? Um, what do you think? Um, I, I definitely think it's at the nearest uh, point of comparison because um, mm. both of them, I think Men at Arms, one of the reasons why it figured a bit uh, lower down the list than the other watch ones for us, 
was that the, the, the plot does get a bit messy at times. I obviously had yeah. an issue with the, the villain switching but not really explaining what his motivation was. And then we both thought the dog skill stuff was sort of like fun and like thematically paralleled, but like in terms of plot wise didn't really yeah, didn't gel at all. Dovetail with the yeah, gel with the um it's, with, it, with the main plot. And you have something similar here with as we said, the the kind of plot itself sort of being abandoned or getting really nebulous once they get over to Clatch and they're all just kind of spinning their wheels mm. essentially while they wait for veterinary to show up and resolve the situation. Um like there, there's some other stuff I, I kind of uh, like I'm I'm a bit iffy on on the, the resolution uh, here. I mean I do I do love that genius of veterinary surrendering and then because he's found out that the island's useless and how it leaves uh, mm. Prince Cadrum in this really dodgy political situation. Yeah. I like the confrontation with Vimes and Ahmed and the their eggs and and Kadram where he he go from this like wonderfully absurd but uh, you know sort of punch the air and joy moment of him trying to arrest both armies to again him Vimes realising the limitations of what they can do and like Hadram's mm. like well where will you have to trial you know you can't have it in Ankh-Morp where it's biased and what he doesn't say is you know if you have it in Clatch I'll get off and Vimes realising oh gosh yeah, actually I've come so far and this, this is beyond me like I really like all that yeah um, but there's yeah there's bits that I like I think um, the, the throughout the business of sort of taking the piss and poking fun and at the uh, like all the absurdities of the kind of like rituals of war that people like Russ do with the the you know the the business of um where he has that like very civil exchange with the Clatchian ambassador where they declare yeah. war. I like that. But then you have that bit where Prince Kadram's coming to see him and Kadram can't believe that this is how they conduct war and he's saying like yeah. you know, he keeps insulting them and he's saying like oh, can you believe in, in Clatching said and I just feel like in Pratchett like in trying to get that message across of like you know it like war is this horrible uh, like senseless um, you know thing that caused so many deaths and it's absurd to dress it up with these rituals and pretend it's some gentlemanly thing like I, I think that's a very wordy uh, point to make and he makes it well in other parts of the book but I thought that was a bridge too far where I'm like oh, like surely like I don't buy that Kadram is so gobsmacked and can't believe that Russ conducts war this way you know mm. what I mean like I can buy that he's a much more cynical character who doesn't believe in the sort of weird honour Russ has but yeah. I think he'd at least know it and know how to use it you know he'd be like oh paying lip service to this idea of oh yeah you know we're like well, wishing you the best of luck before the battle, but really thinking, oh, this is great, yeah, we'll, you mm. know, we'll kill these guys and I'll kill my brother. Um, and just the whole thing of him being like, I can't believe this is how war is going to look. Just felt like that team of, you know, the absurdities of this gentleman's war thing was like hammered home, mm. like, you know, a bit too much. Um, yeah. W- would you agree? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I feel like... Um the strength of this book particularly is this the the idea it's trying to convey the whole the intricacies of war how war is like you know exercised and you know a lot of the futility foolishness of it and also you know just not not necessarily the foolishness of it but just the observations that he makes on war the problem that i have with it is looking back on now even though i enjoy the book a lot and this is like the 
the little pulsing asterisk we have on every single one of these books whenever we kind of slam it is that like it's still a great oh, book. Oh yeah, like yeah, it's an excellent book. Standards is pretty good by most. But I'm thinking back on uh, when we were talking about Men at Arms, and I remember being gobsmacked by that. Like it had some bad points, like you know, as as you already brought up, but the things that it did, it did so well. Like you know, the idea of um, gun control and that whole thing that was really well weaved into that story i felt whereas this one it has strong observations to make but and they're they're they're, they are i'm not saying they are weaved into the story but i would argue not particularly well it could be it could be weaved in better so um i would say because it has very lofty ideals and uh, a lofty agenda i don't think the book itself as a story is as good as Men at Arms. Like matches those, it kind of overstretches itself. And Yeah, I mean, there's so many characters who just do not get well served in this. I mean, yeah. we spend a lot of time with Nobby and Colon, which is great. But like you you were discussing earlier that uh, you don't see that much of Angua, you don't see that much of Cheery. Even Detritus gets very little in this mm-hmm. and he's great. He's so good in every book. Um, even Vimes, like I mean, it's he's Vimes is good in every single book. He's the best thing almost about every single book. But looking back on it, even though I love every sentence like spent inside his head, I feel like this is probably one of his weakest. Again, great, but mm-hmm. just probably one of his weakest turns. Yeah, yeah, it certainly does feel so far. Um, yeah, in in the same way that uh, how would you put it that like. It's more glaring what Angua of this business of like her arc is sort of put on hold, mm. and if you took this out, it wouldn't really change much. But it's kind of similar with Vimes, where you have like obviously he's like run down copper and guards guards who manages to like pick himself up and find a bit of dignity, mm. you know, and drive again. Uh, men at arms, he's staring into retirement and wondering, you know, what it will really do. Then he gets a new lease of life at the end of it when he's made commander of the watch. Mm. Feet of clay is him kind of dealing with like you know the watch being bigger. Uh, and and his new role as a gentleman and balancing those two mm. and we just sort of get more of the same here like yeah. as, as I said I do like that he's like much more over his head than he is in Feet of Clay in, in the war but it is more of the same and it, like it's really Fifth Elephant dude, that takes the next step of like okay well we've seen him like balance the social side of being a gentleman and the professional side of being you know the commander well here's the almost a professional side of his new social situation he's mm. gonna like now he's gonna go to another country he's out of his comfort zone mm. um, and then as you said uh, um, Nightwatch puts a bow on it all by like, taking him right back to where he began and you know deconstructing the mm. idea of that being um, so rosy and, and, and nostalgic so there is a sense that like this is kind of um, inessential and I'm conscious that when we say this like I very much doubt Pratchett planned out this arc for Vimes absolutely not uh, no. yeah it's just kind of how it happened but ultimately it is how you can't help but read it you know like mm. expecting the characters to like when you've seen him change or uh, and, and him and others change to a certain extent and uh, over every book you can't help but expect it in each one of them and actually it just brings me to the end where we get the customary um, bit at the end that we have it all watches where the veterinary Vimes meet up and a kind of resolved situation and it, like Vimes is obviously a lot more conflicted than he usually is um, mm. about how this thing has worked out and he sort of feels like this is all some political game and some people actually died in the war mm. and then like like veterinary essentially 
bribes him um, into calming down basically yeah by yeah. giving him a, 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 a duke's position um, and uh, the reviving um, a rehabilitating old Stoneface's role now I, like I won't get into the you know Cromwell stuff of that because I've talked about it enough with mm. Feet of Clay but just within the narrative itself it does really come across as okay he does have that line to Vimes where he's like look all these men marched to war and there was no battles and you know uh, Vila Vine Veterinary mm. um, but it still very much feels like uh you know, it goes from him... Like, Vimes actually says... I think says is this a bribe? And Veterinary doesn't really answer him. Mm. And he just keeps talking about the benefits of it. And, and Vimes takes it. And what sort of annoys me with it is... I mean, there is a kind of... There would be, like, a, a reason other than just pacifying Vimes or, or, you know, buttering up his ego or whatever to make him mm. a duke in that this book has shown the latent power of the Ankh-Morpork Park aristocracy that, like, when there's these crises, people like Rust are just put in charge mm. and you obviously have Vimes raising his regiment because he's a knight and Veterinary could kind of be saying well I'm going to make you a duke so when it comes to these situations where the aristocrats are still you know still wield power you'll be there to wield power mm. and you can do it you know properly like you can do it with some sense and compassion as opposed to people like Rust um, so like you know that's all like if you're just thinking of this in terms of like fan theory or fanon, that's mm. perfectly legitimate according to everything we've read in the book. Yeah. But it isn't said at all. Like it's just like veterinary just like, oh it's all what sense, about a duke? Yeah. I bet Lady Sybil would like that. And Vine's just kinda like, Well, I suppose she would. Mm. Um and then he's like, Oh, what about rehabilitating your ancestor, eh? Uh yeah, and it just feels um I, I don't know, it, it feels kind of like messier than it should. Yeah, it does just feel like banter. It doesn't feel like it has any real impact. Like, yeah. I don't think you... The statue that he mentioned, which uh, Vimes insists is really close to the palace, I don't think that is ever brought up again. You know, it's just like, it's... Yeah, I, well, it must actually must keep an eye out. Yeah, it but it's, it's just, it just feels like it's there. It's, it's a bit of a messy conclusion. And uh, this is the thing, I mean... It's one of those things you can always bring back to, well, you know, war is messy, you know, there aren't any simple solutions, but I feel like that's kind of a lazy way of going out of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Like, the, the one kind of clean thing in it all, and uh, it's such a great part of the character, is, is Vimes' integrity. Like, as I said, I mm. love that part where he, you know, out of nowhere goes ballistic against Ahmed because he realises he's risked uh, innocent lives. And here you have him actually, conflicted about the idea of innocence sign in the war. And Veterinary tries to resolve that, but it doesn't seem like he does. Like Vimes seems kind of like grumpy and conflicted mm. when they're talking. When he, you know, Veterinary's saying about uh, um, Colin and Nobby getting the, the traffic position, which I, I do like. I think that's, that's great. Yeah. Or whatever. But you know, he talks about the idea of like a, a brains race between them and Clack rather than an arms race. Mm. And Vimes still seems kind of you know suspicious as to this whole situation, and then it's just like, ah, oh, what if you were a duke? Um, and he, even though. Like, nothing about... I don't think much about the character of Vimes going forward, uh, you know, says... Um, lends credence to the idea of it as a bribe or that he's easily bribed. In fact, I think later... Uh, earlier in this book, isn't it? Veterinary says that the whole idea of starting the war uh, by convincing people that the Morporkians assassinated or tried to assassinate Prince Kafura is based on the idea that Vimes would discover that it was Mark Hawkins because he has such a reputation for honesty mm. and integrity that even in Clatch and these other countries, they would be like, oh, well, look, if, you know, Ankh Morpork's own renowned commander <laughs> thinks it was him, you know, he must be right. Um, and, and that does feel sort of undermined, but it's like weird quasi-bribe. Um, 
And again, maybe like it's it's justified in later books because Peter, uh, not Peter Clay, Fifth Elephant has him in his role as a like diplomat going mm. to another country. Um, but again, it feels like, well, why couldn't we get some hint of that's what veterinary plans here? You know, of him passing around saying like, look, this isn't a bribe. This is because you know I need you, or even like he might say that, but you're needed in this in mm. this role. Like you, like you've seen now, um, the world is bigger than just the streets you patrol as part of the watch. You need to be a part of that. Um, and I, I think might, it's, I might feel like I'm asking for too much, but it, I know the alternative is that it just comes across as like he is bribing him. The one thing I can say about it is that possibly because this happens at the end of almost every single watch book, is that he's given like a little bit more. Uh, he's he's given a slightly better title. It could be kind of liberating him a little bit more, getting him a little bit closer to the idea of free will and acting as he sees fit. Because there's that one moment that I really really like in this is when uh, Vimes has to arrest Veterinary, and he's like, I can't arrest Veterinary, I can't do that. But then yeah, he's like, yeah. but if I don't, then I'm going against everything I was fighting for before. I mean, there has to be order, there has to be a system, and right now. Rust is that system. So if he goes against him, even though he thinks Rust is an absolute prat, then you know he's basically he's completely lost his integrity. So mm-hmm. he's forced to do that. So I think that's kind of Veterinary's way of rewarding him. Like it's not a case of saying you're a complete vigilante; you can do what you want. But it's kind of it gives him a bit more license to be a bit, you know, looser. I guess a bit more of a loose cannon. Like it's mm-hmm. not letting him off the hook. But, you know, he does have more freedom to kind of flail about when he goes on his little rampages, which he does quite often. Now, that's just one theory. I'm not saying that's 100% what Terry Bradshaw was planning, but it is one way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But overall, uh, I have to say, yeah, I don't think this measures up quite as well to Men at Arms. Okay, so uh, just below Men at Arms, then we've got Reaper Man at 10. Um, I don't think it's as good as Reaper Man. Okay, below Reaper Man, we've got Witches Abroad at 11. Ooh, um, which is abroad. Uh, I really enjoyed the story of which is abroad. It's kind of the polar opposite of this one, mm. where the story's fine, but it's more the message. Whereas which is abroad, the message was kind of okay, but the story was so good. It kind of depends what you're after more, really. Mm-hmm. I think I'd probably lean towards which is abroad being better, in my personal opinion. Yeah, I think I would too. I feel like um, it's a more enjoyable read. Yeah, yeah, and and. Um, some I, I feel like some of the stuff that Jingo does with like with war and so on and prejudice other books do as well like Men in Arms mm. and deals with prejudice and it's said interesting times a bit with war whereas the the whole like narratology mythology of uh, Witches Abroad the other Witches books touching it but not quite in the storybook way that that does so. yeah okay so uh, below Witches Abroad is moving pictures of 12 Personally, because I like that book so much, I moving pictures I prefer to Jingo. Okay, fair enough. And below moving pictures is Weird Sisters at 13. Now, here's where it gets tricky, because again, Weird Sisters, similar to Witches Abroad, it's a great story, but um, I feel like there isn't really much it has to say there at all, except, like, you know, it's just kind of critiquing Shakespearean plays. Now, I didn't read that with you and Rose, like so it's been quite some time since I've read it, but... That one's really more on you. What would um, you think? I, I think it does do a bit more than just being a Shakespeare parallel, but it does have a sense of maybe not being, particularly like in, in light of the subsequent which ones, of not being as like filled out as, mm. as the later ones. Um, 
uh, like I, one thing I uh, talked about when, when me and Ross talked about it was like uh, like Lancre doesn't feel as, as lived in or as, as coloured in as, as it is later um, and this obviously benefits from the fact that Ankh-Morpork very much is you know mm-hmm. that we kind of it can bounce off that uh, fact that Ankh-Morpork so established um, yeah so I don't know I could go either way there like it could what's, what's the next one down Interesting Times okay well I think this is definitely better than Interesting Times yeah I can, I can say that without fault yeah, so yeah. it's really whether or not this tops Weird Sisters um, god it really is a tricky one that one now because Weird Sisters is so simple like it, it really is a very very simple book but there's a joy in that now, this is far more ambitious but it gets messy as a result, so it depends. It, it, it's weighing those two up. Um, yeah, I, I think I lean towards Weird Sisters just a tad, and I can't quite say why. Mm, I um, think it's just because it's a neater book. You know, it's like yeah. when you're going into it, you don't have to say, "Wait, but why are they doing it?" It's you know, like like veterinary Jingo's juggling a lot of balls, whereas like Weird oh, Sisters has a very sh- unlike veterinary, it can't quite keep them all in the air. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. I think you're right. I think I'd lean towards Weird Sisters, yeah. So. Okay, so you say new number new number 14, Jingo, uh, below Weird Sisters, above Interesting Times. That sounds good to me. Okay, Kula Bula, that's Jingo at number 14. Um, so next up we have The Last Continent. Ah, which is, I believe, the last Rincewind book, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, unless you count The Last Hero, which is kind of a Rincewind book. Well, we might look at that again, but um, this is the last full-sized Rincewind novel, so... Yeah, um, yeah, it is. It'll be um, the end of a journey of sorts. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It all, it all began with the, the, the wizard. It'll be good um, to actually, because when we've been doing all these now, um, Rincewind has definitely been, like, the least well-served, you know, mm-hmm. out of all the genres. He's... The highest-rated one, I think, is Interesting Times, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's not great. Yeah, so I'm hoping, I'm hoping, because Terry Pratchett really seems to be reaching his stride at this point... Mm-hmm. I'm hoping that this one will be better than I remember. Um, I always remember liking Colour of Magic, but uh, I suppose that's just because it was my entry into it, you know? So I remember really liking the B-plot with the Wizards and the God of Evolution in uh, Last Continent, so I'm looking forward to getting to that. Okay. But uh, that can all um, wait till later. Uh, for now, thank you very much for listening, whoever you are, wherever you are. Um, wherever you're listening from, you can also find us on, uh, on iTunes, on... Um, podcast addict on uh, um, soundcloud on, on a range of other streaming and downloading services you can get in touch with us on twitter at radio Morfork, on facebook if you search for radio Morfork, you can email us at radio at gmail.com find our website uh, radiomorfork.wordpress.com which where you'll have um, the list along with some of the, the smaller lists uh, we used to do for for other episodes in full um, and if you really like what you've heard, uh, uh, please leave us a review on your um, streaming service of choice. That would also uh, our divergent alter egos can be found on Bebo and MySpace. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The versions of us that were lost earlier we, <laughs> that were lost we in the ether. We picked up the wrong Zoom recorder. <laughs> <laughs> and I think uh, well, what's the name of Google's? Ah, oh, never mind. Google Plus. So. There you go. Yeah, they're all the ones that they can be found on. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> look out for them. There. Who knows? Who knows what they're up to? They're not dead um, already. Yeah, so um, (laughs) until next time, goodbye. Toodaloo.